You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jaffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. We're going to be talking about serving others today, but in the context of what and why. Why is it that we're encouraged to serve one another? Who laid down that example for us? And whose example are we to follow in that? And I, and I hope it'll get very practical as well at the end. We'll talk about spiritual gifts a little bit. Uh, how you has been, have been individually gifted to serve this church and this body, but throughout the world as well. Uh, so let, let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful that you are here among us. Your word says that you became flesh, you dwelt among us. And God, now your spirit is with us. And we are united together. Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us true. Keep us humbly coming to you. Worshiping you. Praising you. But God, also being hungry to grow. To be fed. To learn. To understand. To mature. So that we can actively go from this place. And be used by you. May you, God, bless these people. Bless the children in all the rooms. Bless these kids that are being instructed at a young age. Lord, encourage them and be with them. And even the the ones who are too young for that, would you bless them and care for them? Thank you for these families. Thank you for these people. May you bless them and keep them in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 20. This is going to be kind of setting the scene for us as we then move into Romans 12, which will be our main passage. But the passage here in Matthew 20 has always fascinated me. Mothers, you're proud of your sons, right? (laughs) Moms, if you have a couple boys, you're proud of those boys. And these sons here had a very proud mother. And uh, she kind of got them into hot water a little bit. We're going to read how um, she asked Jesus to set them on their right hand and left hand. And uh, then he uses that as a teaching example. All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. So came up to Jesus. And kneeling before him, she asked Jesus for something. Verse 21, and he said to her, what, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink. They said to him, we are able. Verse 23. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They, they weren't too happy that the two brothers were trying to skip the line, right? Verse 25, this is speaking of the disciples, and Jesus called them, all, them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their ones exercise authority over them, meaning it, this is the way the Gentiles operate, lording their importance and their authority and their status over others. That's how everyone else acts, but verse 26 For you, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be your bondservant or slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to then give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. This is setting the scene for you. The source and the foundation of all the service that we give, that we have, that we do, everything comes from receiving Jesus here in this passage, receiving his example and following him with it. For it starts with receiving Jesus who gave himself and his life for us. He came to serve and not to be served. The verse probably familiar to many of us who grew up in church, but if we really consider it for a moment, it's quite shattering. It shatters our expectations of of who is to be the servant among us, of what true biblical Christian leadership is meant to look like. The greatest among us, well, if they don't have love or service, you could say, 1 Corinthians would say, they're nothing. (laughs) I could do all of these things, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. The greatest among these, if we don't serve out of love, if, if those uh, who are among us, if, if, if the leaders don't serve out of love, they're worthless, they are nothing. They are the least, you could say. But what could be considered the last place people? The last place, this, this idea the first must be last, the last must be first. This is an idea that Jesus teaches in a variety of places. But if we all serve out of love, we'll be first. The true standard of greatness, what it is, this, this hierarchy there. Christ's example is, is so clear. He came to serve, not to be served. The great God above, the divine incarnate deity comes down to then give his life to serve. What does he do as an example in John 13? He goes through an extraordinary example of that as he washes the disciples' feet. And every single disciple, if you recall, he washes Judas's feet. He goes around and he takes, a, takes this um, towel and ties it around his waist and he seeks to wash this out. Peter and others, <clears throat> Lord, don't wash my feet. I, I can't allow you to wash someone like me. And Jesus says, you, you don't understand. Let me give an example to you for you to follow. Let me wash your feet. The God of creation. The divine word, the logos, come down to then take our dirty, smelly, stinky feet and wash them. It's an extraordinary picture. And that picture truly embodies what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means for you and me to follow Jesus' example is truly embodied in that self-sacrifice willingness to wash someone else's feet. It's not something... uh, we really maybe look forward to, or we think about too often. But it's so important that Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to give, and to give us an example to follow. And if Jesus came to serve and not be served, why is it that you came here today? <laughs> and I remember a few weeks ago, I asked, your, I asked your permission to step on your toes, right? And you all granted me that position, Uh, permission, therefore I did so, right? And yet I think that's important, right? As we preach, as we think through these things, uh, my own life, why is it that we gather? Do we come to be served? Do we come to be entertained? 
Do we come to hear what we feel like we need to hear? As Lars was saying here, do we come to hear what God would have us to hear? Do we come to willing, willing to lay down our convictions or whatever it might be in order to find ourselves submitting to the Spirit of God that might move in our lives? Why do we come? Do we come to serve or do we come to be served? I'm not necessarily saying that there's a time in your life when you come and you can't serve in an official capacity. That's not what I'm saying. Like if you're not volunteering on a Sunday in an official role, then you're not serving. That's, that's not what we're talking about today. That is a way that you can serve the church. But there are so many other ways. And I think often it comes down to a mindset. I've often said it in the past, at least for me, it's often, why is it that we come to church? Why is it that we come here? Yes, there is so much that we need to receive. Sometimes we come tired, hungry, broken, depressed. We're needing an encouraging word. We're needing to be taught. We're needing someone to smile and hug us and help us. That I'm not denying. But I think sometimes when we live in a culture that is so built around paying for a product and receiving that product and reviewing that product online, is it a three-star, four-star, five-star, right? Google reviews. Liking, commenting, interacting, judging, all of these things. This is a very popular thing in our world today. And so when we live in that world, I think it can happen that when we gather as a church, we see it as, well, did this meet my needs? Was I entertained by the whatever? Did this, did I get out what I wanted to get out of? Versus just a mind shift or a change of, Maybe, potentially, we can think it through, maybe you come to church not so much for you, but for the person sitting next to you. You ever thought of that? And you're like, well, no one's sitting next to me. Well, okay, fine. There's someone, someone in the row, someone behind you, you get the idea. Okay? Potentially, we come together as a physical body of Christ, not so much just for me, but for the person next to me. That, that person is why I'm here. And sometimes I know what it's like to get up, oh, I gotta go, I gotta do this, I gotta figure out this, and if this is only for me, then I do what I want to do. But what if we're here not so much for myself, but for the other person that I'm connected to? Because spiritually, you're connected to one another. You're here because of the person next to you. You're here physically and present, maybe just to encourage someone else to see that someone else is in this battle together right? That we're sitting and fighting this war together, that I'm not alone. So you come together to physically be together so that others can see your faith, can see your presence. Maybe potentially you can give an encouraging word to someone. You can say hi. You can help a young family. You can help encourage and give a hug to someone who needs it. This is why we gather in some ways. I'm not saying this is the only way, but it's something that I've often thought about, that maybe I'm, I'm sitting in this chair thinking, this pastor better give me something that I need today, you know? That was a three-star sermon. Last week was a four, you know, right? Or, or man, this, that, whatever it might be. I think sometimes if we, we, we don't allow ourselves to simply sit and humble ourselves, that we are gathering as a body, a church together to praise and worship God on high. And it's in that humble adoration of God, where we turn our eyes on him, and suddenly the world seems to disappear. As we look to him, and as we find others doing the same and encouraging us together, this is, this is the beauty I see in the church so often. 
Maybe it's sometimes because I get to sit up here and look at you all and see all the different things going on. And it's amazing the things I pick up while I'm preaching. And some of you are smiling right now. You're like, oh, he didn't, you know, he had to do one of those. No, I'm joking. I, I, I'm, I'm totally focused on the sermon, right? I'm not thinking about you at all. No. Um, that's the idea, that there's this group, there's people, there's situations, there's faces here, that I know there's things going on in your life. Then there's many of you I don't know super well. I don't know everything going on in your life. I don't know all the situations, but the Spirit of God does, and yet someone else here does maybe knows that in a way they can come and gather and encourage you. And I find that a beautiful thing. And I wonder sometimes if maybe we put the things of God and things of church in the back burner for all the wrong reasons. Because we're busy, we have things going on, we have things we need to do. And, and church always takes a back seat because there's so many other things in life that take the front seat. I wonder if we changed our mindset to be, I'm, I'm here for you. I'm here for church for you. I'm coming for him, the one who saved me. And it's in that that we will find ourselves filled. We will find ourselves living and walking in his spirit. And so I know that things are busy. I know life is hard. And I know life is difficult, and yes, there are many reasons that keep us away, but it is when we gather that I feel the beauty of truly receiving Jesus, receiving him together, and then finding that he gave us the greatest example, that he came to serve, not to be served. So why is it that we're coming here? Let us come here to serve one another, to give of ourselves, and that's this next point. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Awesome passage here. We only have time to just touch on this, and then we're going to keep walking through the passage. But the next point is not only are we receiving Jesus, but we're giving ourselves. Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives us an example of this. Giving of ourselves. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, So in a sense, he's not saying out of duty because you have to drag your feet. No, he's saying out of the great mercy of God, his grace has been poured onto you. I appeal to you. It's almost like he's shaking you, right? I appeal to you by God's great mercy. This is the motivation. Not because, oh, I have to do this. I get to do this because of what Jesus has done for me. So by God's great mercy, what are we to do? It's not easy. What's he's about to say? This isn't easy. This is a very challenging verse. What does he say? By the mercies of God to to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Powerful passage. A living sacrifice. To give of myself for God. To put myself on an altar to present my life and my body and everything I have to God as a living, breathing sacrifice for him so that my life would be a living offering of worship. See, that's what it says, that holy, acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. It is in that as we worship him spiritually, we physically put our bodies on that altar to be given to him so that he may use us in whatever capacity he desires. It's a giving of ourselves. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to come to church and be the body? What does it mean to serve God and to serve others with our lives? 
Romans 12 gives us that summary. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to give and present our bodies and our lives as a living sacrifice. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, there is still a New Testament sacrificial system. It is not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement, but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has been made for us. God does not ask us to bring our livestock and burn it on the altar. (laughs) He asks us to give ourselves and to put ourselves alive on the altar. To be a Christian means to live a life of sacrifice, a life of presentation, making ourselves a gift to God. Some people think that all it takes to do this is to be a Christian is to scribble a check to give a few hours of service here and there or a special project of the church or that's not just what believers are called to. My, he says, my life is to be set apart, consecrated to God. That is what it is acceptable to him. This is what delights him. This is what pleases him. That is the appropriate response to him and for him. Your life is to be a living sacrifice, to be given to God, to be used by him, as an active, living, breathing presentation of worship to him wherever you go. Serving yourself no longer becomes an option. Serving and seeking numero uno is no longer an option when I've given myself to be used and burned up as for him. We say, God, use me. I'm here. My life is for you. What would you want me to do? I mean, so often we talk about generally like that, like, I want to be used by God, but how is it that that happens? Do we really mean, Lord, use me? In these parameters, right, here's my list of requirements, Lord, (laughs) Or, or is it truly, I'm giving all of myself upon that altar, use me in whatever you would have me to do, that kind of sacrifice is a sacrifice that may cause us to give up certain things, but it is a giving up of certain things in exchange for a relationship of intimacy with God and a sustaining of his spirit and by his power. The exchange is not equal. It's incredibly powerful. And so we find that this motivation for this sacrifice, so often as a preacher, I'm tended to say, okay, now let me ratchet in the guilt Okay. Let me turn in the guilt and make you feel bad about how much time you're serving on a daily week, right? Because we could play that game. Who's serving the most? They're the best among us, right? <laughs> Who's volunteering the most? They're at the top of the level, right? But that's all the wrong motivation. I need to volunteer or serve or do this or help or come to church out of this many times for this many reasons. Now we get into this whole legalistic standard of who's better than who. Now we get into this idea of boasting when that's the exact opposite of what he's saying to do. Here where motivation is not out of guilt, our motivation is out of grace. Notice how that verse began, by the mercies of God, by his mercy, by his grace, by his love. Now we present ourselves to him because he first loved us. This is the motivation. It's not a guilt tripping into serving and doing more for the sake of being busy and looking holy. It's a motivation of a true understanding of God's grace for me. And now how can I be used by him? 
as his servant, a grace that has been given. He laid down his life for me. Now I get to lay down my life for him. What a beautiful thing. What a way to live your life. When all of a sudden the world doesn't revolve around you. Rather, the world looks totally different when it's inwardly understanding the grace of God so that outwardly you can express that grace and love to others in a variety of way in whatever direction God might call you and direct you. It's an extraordinary, empowering thing to share that hope of Jesus with others. And so, chapter 12, verse 1 says that. Chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Then verse 3 gives us another starting point for our next point. It's staying humble, because look at this. Verse 3 He goes off of that big idea of living sacrifice. Let your whole life be given to him. And then what does it say? Verse three, for by the grace, right? Grace, not guilt. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment or a right mind, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what do you say? Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't we need that reminder more often than we are care to admit, right? Pride kills. There's a great message for you. Pride kills. We've got to know and understand that. As a church, as we present ourselves, as we come and seek to serve, if we do not allow humility to be the base kind of source, almost the the oil that kind of keeps the, the engine going, if we don't allow humility to be there, our pride will overcome and destroy Matthew 20, hey, which disciple will be at your right hand and left hand? Hey, which disciple will be the most important? Jesus is like, look, that's the way everyone else thinks. Who's better than everyone else? Who gets more power and authority over other people? That's how the world thinks. That's not to be among you. Your standard or metrics of greatness is not in who's the biggest and the strongest, but rather who serves, who's willing to humble themselves the most. Jesus gives that example, washing his feet. In Philippians 2, he talks about how Jesus has humbled himself, has condescended among us, has come down, as it says in Philippians 2, and taking on the form of the servant, it says. Taking on human form and serving us, he then gives his life. Jesus is a great example of that, coming down to earth. And then ultimately, as we humble ourselves, Lord, I want to be used by you. What what do you want me to do? I I humble myself and submit to you, Lord. Whatever you would have me to do, I will do. And then at the same time, when we do that, we humble ourselves before him. And we're also admitting that it's it's the one we look to him, that God supplies. He assigns. He directs. Comes from him. Look, it says in that verse, verse three, not to think we're... Not to think more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Isn't that awesome? The measure or the portion that you've been distributed with is the the measure and portion that you're supposed to use it with. That that God is the one who does the assigning. Therefore, we have no right to boast. It really frees us up. It, It really frees us up from constantly guilt tripping that maybe you're not doing enough or as much as someone else next to you. How come I can't sing like she does? Or how come I can't write like she does? Or how come I can't speak like he does? Or how come I don't this, that, or the other, right? 
we compare ourselves, not only physically and in life, but literally spiritually, that those people are doing so much more. Well, if that was what the way that we're supposed to do it, then we could all boast. We could all boast. Look at, look at me. Look at all the things I'm doing. Look at what I've accomplished. And the whole opposite is like, look, God assigns his task for you. God apportions to you a measure of faith that needs to be used. God gives you a spiritual gift in your uniqueness to be used for him. God assigns. God designs. God supplies. Not me. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Now, yes, we can waste those things and we can avoid those things. But what is it that God has given you to do? Don't always look and compare yourself to someone else. I struggle with this a lot. <laughs> I, I, this is one of the areas where as a pastor, as a preacher, <laughs> all you can do online is constantly look to other pastors and preachers or on YouTube and Facebook and all over the place and all the ministries that they have, the capabilities and speakings that they have, the teaching gifts that they've been given that I always compare myself to that, man, I'm not, I'm not as good as they are. I, ca- I can't do what this person does, right? Rather than just saying, this is what God's called me to do. I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. He's going to make me successful or not. What I want to do is be faithful and true to him, right? So whatever that is, it doesn't really matter. If I'm faithful and true to him, God gives the increase, right? So 1 Corinthians 1, 29 says, God chose so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that because of you that are in Christ Jesus, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, right? We're here to boast in him. I boast that he has saved me and enabled me and equipped me and called me to do all of this, to do whatever God might be calling you to do. He will equip the called, you could say, as many people say. But ultimately, if we're careful, if we're not careful, pride will short circuit all of that service for God. You'll get your big head in the way and how it's all about you and not about him. It's not about his people. Rather, put ourselves, sacrifice ourselves, humble ourselves on that altar to be used by him. And ultimately, humility will keep that engine running, that oil that allow that engine to keep moving and keep functioning, the engine of the church, the thing among us, that spirit of God, developing humility in every single one of us. Humility will allow this place to thrive. Pride will stifle it, seize that engine up. That oil leaves and all of a sudden that engine overheats and starts cranking and destroying itself. Rather, that oil of humility within the church allows us to thrive and serve wherever God might be equipping us and empowering us to serve. And that's what I wanna get to in these final few moments. Romans 12, verse four and five absolutely love these couple of verses. I've shared these often when we introduce new members at the church. Often I'll read this passage. And I was directed this week to go through it and just take our time in this passage because it's so important. Romans 12 verse 4 says, for as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another. And then I'm going to just keep reading to verse 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. And I love this phrase. And the one who does acts of mercies, of mercy with cheerfulness. 
This is beautiful, beautiful description of what I was trying to describe to you earlier when we started the message of just walking around and seeing the faces of all the different people, all the areas in which people are ministering to one another, many of which you'll never see on this stage at all, right? Many of which are behind the scenes, not seeking any attention, but seeking to lay down their lives for the use of God and for others. Because we are many members, and we don't all have the same function, and like many of you are saying, amen to that, right? (laughs) We don't all want to be the mouth or the ear or the hand, right? You need to be doing what God's called you to do. Yet, individually, you're skilled and equipped and unique, and yet you're not alone, right? That's what makes the church so unique, that you are unique, you are skilled and individually equipped and spiritually gifted by God, but you're not alone. You're actually interconnected to the body. That's why your presence here today means something on a spiritual level, because it connects us. There is unity among us in his spirit, yet not uniformity. There's unity among us in the spirit, but not uniformity. You don't all have to look and dress and talk alike, right? You don't all have to uh, be able to have a teaching gift or a singing gift or a praise. Or what's those passages? Prophecy. What does it say? Teaching, contributing, generosity, zeal, acts of mercy. These areas in which we all have different giftings and, and talents and abilities. And yet I'm so thankful that God not, has not made us uniform the same. But rather, we can support each other. Where I'm strong, we can, I can support you. Where I am weak, others come in and support. We are together in one. God assigns, he wills. It's almost like, in many ways, the church and marriage are often described in this way. In Ephesians 5, church and marriage are put together. Paul describes this. That what, what God has equipped one of, the, of the, 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 the person to do, the other person is equipped to do as well. That they work together as one flesh in marriage and yet being separate, distinct individuals. It's the unity and yet not uniformity, that what I'm called to do is not the same thing my wonderful wife is called to do, right? And what she's called to do and skilled and empowered by the Spirit to do, I'm not always called and skilled and empowered by the Spirit to do. But yet working together, we become one. We're able to serve out of that overflow of what the Spirit is doing within us, uniting us together, humbling ourselves to recognize each other's strengths and weaknesses and supporting each other in that. That's what makes a marriage. That's why a church and marriage are often two illustrations that are used to better understand the other. Your marriage and the way the church forms and works together are one of the same. That we're different members, different parts like a body. You have a, I don't know whether you guys wanna know what you are. Are you a foot? Are you a hand or you an ear? You're a good listener? You, you a mouth? Some of you know how to talk a lot, right? Uh, so, uh, we, we're, we're strong or an arm. Or what about like, you a kidney? <laughs> what about a liver? <laughs> you don't see those things, but I'll tell you what, from firsthand experience in our family, when you find out their kidneys aren't working, you'll know very quickly what the entire body is affected by that. Isn't that what's fascinating about it? James Montgomery Voice says this. This is an important image from the church. Because it pictures it as an organic whole rather than a machine made of independent parts. Do you get that? It's an organic whole, not a machine made up of independent parts. The church is not an airplane. It's not a train, not an automobile. It is an organism in which the parts are alive 
and both support and depend on the other. Some seen parts, some unseen parts. Some that we would say are the valuable ones and the other ones that we would say aren't as valuable are actually in the scripture described as indispensable. So some of you who might come to church and say, I don't even belong to be here. I don't even know why I'm here. Nobody will ever value me and what I bring to the table. But look at those people over there. They're so skilled. We're missing the point. We're missing the point. We're, We're starting to put each other on a plane of importance. See, this idea of the whole body depends on each other. When I stub my toe, my entire body knows, right? When the kidneys are working and functioning, the whole body functions well, but they don't think about the kidneys. Man, goodness, I'm thankful the kidneys are working. But we know when they're not working. We know when they're not working. 1 Corinthians 12 says this. Weaker and unpresentable parts are just as important as the other. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. This is 1 Corinthians 12. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we are to bestow the greater honor. Get this. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Because God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care. I think about this sometimes, and maybe I just wonder to myself, I think to myself a lot, I talk to myself a lot. Do you guys talk to yourselves a lot? And I talk to myself, especially this week, because I was thinking about this passage. I've read that passage before in 1 Corinthians 12, but I just had never thought about it in this way, and in this context, our presentable parts and our unpresentable parts. And which ones do you truly value more than others? I'm ashamed to say there are times that I can look at people and things and see, wow, look what they bring to the table. I'm going to honor and value and pay attention to them. But these other people, you know, I don't really know what they do for me. So, you know what I mean? The other day I had a, an interaction with somebody. Um, it, was, it was just an interaction that no one else knew about, and I just thought about it in my head, and like, like I said, I was talking to myself. <laughs> but it's someone else who clearly had a, a form of autism, and they had uh, physical disabilities as well. I was actually at the ski mountain with my daughter. She was in lessons. And I was just sitting there. They kind of came up to me, talked to me briefly in a conversation that was awkward for me because I didn't know exactly what they were saying, and I clearly gathered there was some physical challenges there and mental um, autism of sorts. I'm not sure. And again, I'm stumbling over my words because I don't know how to describe it. But I began to think like, you know, God loves those people just as much as he loves me, right? Like the presentable parts, the ones that I can think, I've got the degrees, I'm the speaker and the pastor, the one who's an elder and a leader, but This passage strikes home because God doesn't look at me or you as more important than any other else. He he values each person individually. Isn't that not incredible? He knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you've been through and what you're going through. And he loves you and cares for you. And that goes for these little children here who, who don't even understand what we're talking about. 
That goes for those who the physically disabled, who can't do all the things maybe the church needs them to do, or maybe slow us down, we could say. They don't produce what we want them to produce. Do you get what I'm saying? This, this aspect of loving the least of these, the poor, the hungry, the needy, the unpresentable parts of the church. Do we value them just the same way that we do anyone else? As a church, do we humble ourselves and allow ourselves to see people for the way God sees them? And he values and loves us all. And how do we then treat others with our lives? Are we then seeking to serve only those who can give us in return what we give to them? Or are we simply serving out of an overflow of God's grace, and if nothing ever comes back to us, I don't need any attention or any, um, anything in return? Maybe it's loving the body of Christ, not for what they can do, but for who they are in Christ, who God is making them to be, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made. No one is to be despised or rejected. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You are a child of God. He will answer you no matter what. And so if anything, before we kind of close here, looking at spiritual gifts, I I I don't want you to leave today thinking that you're insignificant because you don't do X, Y, and Z, right? Now, if you're called to lead in the youth room and help with the youth, if you're called to serve behind the scenes on Fellowship Sunday or a deacon or an elder, I believe that some of those callings are things that God places on you on weights and burdens to be carried and to be empowered by him. Some of you are called to come and support and love one another You're called to be part of the body and you're valuable in his sight. These children, these little babies, these kids, these families, you are loved and welcomed in. You're never a bother. You're never in the way. (laughs) So I don't know all the stuff you know. That's great. Where are you on this journey of life? How can you know Christ, grow in him, and serve others in what God's equipped you with, called you with, and empowered you with? And that's what I kind of want to end with. Because in verse 6 through 8, it describes a list, an incomplete list. Paul is literally just saying, here are a few spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 describes a few other spiritual gifts. There are other places that describe different offices in the church, prophets and teachers and, and all of these pastors. and so. It describes things. I don't think any one of those lists is complete. But it gives us a picture of what spiritual gifts are and how God has equipped us to serve. Romans 12 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Romans 12, 11, all these are empowered by one of the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Weaker gifts are actually called, or weaker unpresentable, are actually called indispensable in the body that we should value and honor them just the same as we would any other. And so we're together in this, that we suffer, we all suffer together, we rejoice, we all rejoice together. Are we all the same? No. Are you all teachers? No. Are we all uh, apostles and prophets? No. But the body of Christ comes together, each having received a gift from the Holy Spirit. But we don't all have that same gift in the same sense. And so we often ask ourselves, and it's a just question as we kind of close, thinking about the real practical side, what spiritual gift do I have? What spiritual gift, what, what, what am I called to do? And I don't always know that. I don't know that, in fact. 
There are three kind of groupings of spiritual gifts that many people would try to break down. Larry Gilbert talks about it this way. There's these kind of miraculous gifts in one category, apostleship and tongues and interpretation and miracles and healings. And then there's the enabling gifts as a category for gifts that are described in the Bible, the gifts of faith, discernment, wisdom, and knowledge. And then the most common that we see working among us probably each and every day are the team gifts or the service gifts, whatever you might say. These ones are listed in the scripture. There's the gift of evangelism, people who are passionately leading others to the saving knowledge of Christ. There's the gift of prophecy, this boldly and fearlessly proclaiming God's truth. It's not just this prediction of the future. We often think of that, that prophets in the Old Testament, it was boldly predicting, uh, um, preaching God's truth. Teaching gift, making clear the truth of God's word with simplicity and accuracy. There's the gift of exhortation, this motivating others to action, application, and purpose. This exhortation often called the gift of encouragement. Uh, There's the gift of shepherding, this kind of sense of not just shepherding as a pastor, But often, many of you are very good at shepherding people in the way of life. Shepherding, overseeing, training, feeding, coaching, leading. Uh, There's a gift of serving. People who, in an extraordinary amount, as we are all called to serve, here there's this sense of these people who are gifted in serving, constantly providing practical help, both physically and spiritually in ways. There's the gift of, of mercy showing. As I said, otherwise, I really like this one because it's one that often happens behind the scenes, and yet I've experienced others who have the gift of mercy who've helped me. Mercy showing says this is people who identify with and comfort those in need. You ever been grieving, going through a hard time, and someone who's got the gift of mercy, you probably didn't know it at the moment, comes alongside you, they just comfort you, and you, there's a spiritual sense of something going on there. And then there's the gift of giving. Some of you have been given great wealth by God and then equipped by his spirit to give of that to others in responsible and discernible ways. Giving, releasing material resources to further the work of the church. And then the gift of administration, organizing, administrating, promoting, leading in a variety of ways. And then sometimes these gifts are described in in two ways. They're speaking gifts, kind of the outward, oftentimes very visible gifts, these prophets, teachers, exhorters, shepherds, these things. And then this idea of the ministering gifts, those who are shepherds, mercy showing, servers, givers, administrators, these often ones who are ministering. And so what I'm saying is there are different ways to categorize them, look at them, describe them. In fact, there's a website online that's kind of fun. Me and the staff are doing it this week. I think it's called gifts.churchgrowth.org. It's called gifts.churchgrowth.org. And that that site is simple because you can go on there and take a free spiritual gift assessment and it pumps out kind of things based on the questions you answered. And it's a lot of fun. In the small groups, actually, I think there's some information that if you guys want to do that throughout this week, it's a fun way. It's a man-made test, so don't take it as Bible, but it is a test that is helpful and it's helpful to discern some of the giftings that were given. My test came out as a shepherding. Phew, I'm a pastor. Teaching, so I do every week. Phew. And then the third one was interesting, and maybe that's just, I don't know, where I'm at in life, but was mercy showing, mercy showing. And I don't know if I've always had that or what, but that was the third one for me to be able to shepherd people, and maybe it's just walking with people through different life things and be able to have that mercy for those. 
And then it was funny because we were talking about it at the elders meeting and a few of them were like, I never had mercy on top of my list, I'll tell you that. So we all balance each other, right? Some of them are, are super skilled in other areas. Anyway, so if you want to find your spiritual gift, if you want to be able to search these things, I think one of the first way to do is to start doing something. The Bible says in this passage to use them. You're like, but I don't, I don't know how to use my gift. Okay, well, you can sit there and wait till the sky opens up and shows you your gift, or you can start moving and start serving, start doing, and God will start to direct you. Then you can search, do some kind of online spiritual gift tests, and then you can seek God, ask him, Lord, show me what you would have me to do and equip me to do that. And then don't get so labeled in, like I said, that you got to find your top three gifts and know exactly what they are in order for you to serve. And that's why I say every time tables and chairs are being moved, I always say, I was never gifted in the gift of moving tables and chairs. Therefore, those of you who are gifted in that, let you use your gift. No, right? We often will do that. I'm just not spiritually gifted in that. So why don't you do that, right? That's silly. Silly. No, we, we know that often we're just called to serve. And then God will enable you through that. And oftentimes you might not even know Know what it is, but just do. And that's what I love about that passage. Verse six, as we close, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Whatever way that is, whether it's here or somewhere else, let us use them. God's grace given to you, it differs among us, thank goodness, right? And yet in that, we are to use them. Pray, seek God. And then I would say one final thing, right before I close in prayer. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to yourselves. Ask someone else, hey, what, what am I good at? What, what should I be doing? What can I be doing? How is it that I could be? Because a lot of times I've had a lot of friends who've told me and can see me for who I am without me understanding it, right? People are able to know what you're good at and what you're not good at and where you're equipped and where you're called. And so I think talking with others is a huge help, all right? So that helpful, practical way, let us use our gifts in this coming year. As we know Christ, we grow in him and we serve others out of the spiritual empowering that he's equipped us with. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these things. We ask God that you'd bless us now as we close with a final song, as we lift up our praise to you, as we worship you. May you be glorified today. Thank you, God, for showing us your love today, your grace. God, that you care for us all. You love us all. And it's all because of you. God, I got nothing because of me. It's all because of you, and I thank you for that, God. Continue to empower us. Build your church, your church. And you build us in what you've called us to do and be as Hope Fellowship Church. And you be glorified in all of that. In Jesus' name we pray.